KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, everything you wanted to know about QAnon's adherents and their enemies, you know, the Satan-worshipping pedophiles. Chris Lehman has our report. Also, February is Black History Month, and one of my favorite works of Black history is Isabel Wilkerson's book, The Warmth of Other Suns. It's a history of the great migration of six million black people away from the South in the 20th century. It won the National Book Critics Circle Award and a half a dozen other prizes. We'll speak with the author, Isabel Wilkerson, later in the show. But first, we're still thinking about Joe Biden's State of the Union speech on Tuesday night and the wild and crazy response from Republicans. Their shouts and jeers seem to end up helping him. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Good to be here, John. Well, ever since Biden became president, he has not done well in the polls. But the one in the Washington Post just before the State of the Union speech seemed to be the worst and the most ominous. It asked whether people believe Biden has accomplished a great deal or a good amount or not very much, or little or nothing in his first two years as president. And the dismaying part was that only 36% of Americans answered a great deal or a good amount, and a horrible 62% said not very much or little or nothing. This is after passing, you know, the biggest infrastructure bill and social programs in a century, and when the unemployment rate is at a historic low. But, but, here's my but. If you look at the partisan breakdown, 77% of Democrats said he'd done a lot, and 7% of Republicans did. Isn't that pretty much what you'd expect? It is, although I think Biden could do better among Democrats, and I have a feeling if that poll were taken today, we're speaking one day after the State of the Union, that 77% would be higher. What was really, actually what I thought was the most interesting part of that breakdown, was the self-described independents, who pretty much broke along the same lines as the population at large. Uh, Mid-30s, who thought he'd done a lot, and uh, over 60% who thought he hadn't. I would also add that there's a bit of a non-partisan political issue here, which is that independents, such as they are, tend to follow political news less than either Democrats or Republicans. And so that, I think, contributes to the fact that uh, there's a substantial degree, perhaps less of hostility, although there's some of that, uh, than cluelessness among um, a good chunk of the American people. Now, as I recall the questions, I don't have them in front of me, but they were sort of along the lines of, are there new jobs in your life or in your neighborhood or in your town? Uh, Has there been less unemployment? And so it was very specific to people's experience right now. Yes, it is. And I mean, there are several explanations, I think, behind this. One is that the programs uh, that were enacted in just last year were programs that take a a, a good amount of time to to gear up, uh, building infrastructure, Certainly, uh, the return of, of, of factories and the encouragement of uh, the semiconductor industry to build factories, that sort of thing, all of that takes a while. It takes it, years. It, 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 it takes years. Franklin Roosevelt kind of understood this, and there was this huge appropriation at the beginning of his administration for major capital-intensive projects like building the Boulder Dam, building the Grand Coulee Dam, building the uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority dams. And Roosevelt understood, at that point, unemployment was at almost 25%, that it would take a long time for those uh, projects to gear up and employ people. So he uh, took some of that money and invested it in labor-intensive work in the WPA so that people were shoring up parks and paving roads, which he could do right away. You know, he understood that from an economic standpoint, but he understood that from a political standpoint, too. And Biden's program largely is on the, you know, let's build the Boulder Dam again, (laughs) uh, as it were, uh, side of the equation. And that takes a while. 
So 62% said Biden had done uh, not very much or nothing in his first two years as president. And that meant that this State of the Union speech really carried a lot of weight. This is the annual event in our politics. I was a little surprised to see this that gets the most viewers. Last year, 38 million people watched Biden's State of the Union speech on TV and streaming services and YouTube. Uh, so this is a big opportunity and a big challenge. How did Biden do? I think he surpassed all expectations, certainly mine, but not just mine. Biden has always been someone who would get in trouble in his stump speeches and not just stumbling over words, which isn't necessarily that big a deal. But, you know, you wouldn't want the guy to ad lib. <laughs> well, last night he proved himself the master of that and politically uh, really fraught uh, but ultimately advantageous context. So also just in terms of uh, his being able to tout his own program to a real audience, I am reminded of the preposterous quote from former labor leader John L. Lewis, uh, who went in for ornate prose, uh, which you wouldn't necessarily expect from the president of the United Mine Workers, and who once said, he who tooteth not his own horn the same will not be tooted. So uh, <laughs> Biden was a pretty good horn tutor last night, in addition to calling out the Republicans, having them walk into a trap and slamming the door shut on them. So we got really two separate topics to cover here. His transformation of the Democratic Party agenda, really since the, the Carter years, and the excellent way he dealt with the Republican hecklers. Let's do the fun part first, the sure. Biden and the Republicans. They yelled, they booed, they called him a liar. What did he do about that? He kind of engaged with them. And when, when they fell into the trap of saying, no, we really do support Social Security and Medicare, he, as it were, suddenly got them on the record, you know, got them <laughs> to stand up and affirm that, you know, as a way of defending seniors. We forget sometimes how deeply uh, encoded in Republicans' DNA the opposition to all social insurance is. I mean, people, people forget that Ronald Reagan, his entering gambit in politics when he was speaking for Barry Goldwater in 1964, was to say Medicare would lead to socialism. You don't really hear Republicans uh, having the gumption to say that today. Uh, and Biden just called them out on it. And it also, I think, will make it very difficult for them to, you know, come up with anything plausible in their efforts to hold the debt hostage. Because if you take entitlements off the table, which essentially he got them to say, okay, we'll do that last night, there isn't much left on the table. It was kind of amazing. He, Republicans have called for cutting Social Security and Medicare, which is true of many Republicans. Well, or some certainly Republican. true of, of uh, Senator Scott of Florida, who headed yeah. the Republican Nash, uh, Senatorial Campaign Committee, yes. But when he said that that's what Republicans wanted to do, they booed. And so then he said, well, that means you don't want to cut Medicare right. and Social Security. And right. uh, now 28 million people have, have seen that on TV. The other part I liked was when he, he thanked the Republicans who voted for the bipartisan infrastructure law and then mentioned kind of with a twinkle in his eye, those who voted against it but claimed credit for funding projects in, in their districts. And he told them, don't worry. I promise to be the president for all Americans, will fund your projects, and I'll see you at the groundbreaking. Having fun with Republicans is, it's fun. No, it is. It is. I thought this was a, in many ways, a brilliant speech, both sort of for the larger conceptual stuff, which we'll get to in a moment, but also just for setting up quite how preposterous Republican positions, when you actually expose them to the public, uh, are. And it, you know, he ran with that. That was that was one of the themes of the speech. And how did uh, House Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy do? Did he join in the booing and heckling? McCarthy, who is sitting on uh, the shakiest throne a speaker has ever sat upon. Uh, McCarthy was kind of, you know, uh, gesturing, uh, cut it out. You know, this doesn't <laughs> help us. It, I mean, he didn't really anticipate uh, not only that it didn't help them, but how Biden was uh, going to be able to play them. Uh, so he, he was not a happy camper. 
now Biden and the Democrats, from starting with Carter to Clinton into a lot of Obama, uh, the Democratic Party establishment mainstream has basically been a friend to global corporations at, at the expense of American working class people. Biden took us in a different direction on Tuesday Biden night. Biden took us in precisely direct the direction that, you know, dissident leftists like my colleague Bob Kuttner or the founders of the Economic Policy Institute were saying, you know, even as we were going global and as American industry was being devastated, eventually the devastation grew such that more and more House Democrats were voting against uh, NAFTA or permanent normal trade relations with China, but they were always overridden by the corporate Democrats in alliance with the Republicans. Biden last night, first of all, delivered a diagnosis of the hollowing out of, you know, the American heartland economically and saying this was, you know, under Democratic administrations as well as Republican administrations. So it was really in many fundamental ways, I think, a repudiation of the party establishment's four-decade romance with corporate globalism. And then you know, he takes that further, saying that uh, all products, uh, all the material on infra- federally funded infrastructure projects have to be American made, touting uh, all of this and, and, and saying that, you know, what he was putting forward was what he called a blue collar blueprint for America. So really, he is engaging in uh, getting chunks of the working class that have gone over to the Republican column, uh, getting it back and setting up an interesting, highly asymmetric battle for that slice of the electorate with the Republicans. His original program, which didn't make it through Congress, thanks to Joe Manchin, included a lot of social family child kind of programs. Did he talk about those at all? Yes, he did. Yes, he, he, that was part of the unfinished, unfinished agenda. I should also add that I think one reason Biden's polling on did, you do, did he do very much was so low was that people understand those kinds of reforms because they're the direct recipients of it more readily than funding more infrastructure, more factories, etc., And then the Republicans had their official reply to Biden, and it was given by Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She gave a passionate attack on CRT. Is that, what's she talking about? Cathode ray tubes? Uh, Quite possibly. She ended up speaking in Republican culture war code, critical race theory. She took a point of uh, personal privilege in saying she'd gotten rid of the word uh, Latinx, in uh, whatever Arkansas government documents used Latinx. If they did, that's because of the Republican predecessor, she said, the <laughs> Democrat point. running Arkansas and Bill Clinton. She went uh, full bore on the culture war and, and depicted Joe Biden as either, you know, this agent of wokery uh, and wokeism <laughs> himself or the tool of sinister wokists. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that that attack is going to fly. Is Biden really woke? Uh, I mean, did he say anything about abolishing the police? Did he use the term Latinx? Did he start by announcing that his pronouns were he, him, his? Uh, no, no, and no, respectively. Yeah, I think, and that's what I meant by referring to this asymmetric war for, for the working class. Republicans have used the kind of issues that Sarah Huckabee Sanders was talking about and that Tucker Carlson sees as his mission in life to say that working class values are under threat. Just as she was getting, as Sanders was getting kind of overly specific, let's say, about things like Latinx, because I actually think the number of residents of Arkansas who know what the hell she's talking about, (laughs) probably number in single digits. Biden was getting specific about these little indignities that corporations, you know, inflict on 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 real people like uh, you go to a hotel and there's an added resort fee or you have to pay extra to keep your family sitting together on an airplane. The, the, the battle coming up in 2024 for working class allegiance is uh, one in which Biden ha- offers something tangible economically, as well as a kind of cultural affirmation. And Republicans deal really with simply the cultural issues. They're in no position to discuss economic issues. That's something Biden made clear last night when he called them out on Social Security and Medicare. 
Does this mean Biden is definitely running in 2024? He has not announced yet, but but uh, is anybody going to challenge him after the State of the Union speech? After that speech, I don't think so. I mean, there were a lot of people, myself included, who said, I think he's done a good job, but he shouldn't run. Michelle Goldberg wrote a column uh, in the New York Times earlier this week saying exactly that. Well, that was as effective as anyone has ever seen Joe Biden on the stump. And uh, I, I think, rightly or wrongly, that dispelled uh, a great deal of anxiety. And it also made clear, I think, that uh, he's sounding exactly the issues which the Democrats need to sound if they're to win in 2024 and thereafter. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, in the re- official Republican response, ended <laughs> by saying, quote, The dividing line in America is no longer between right and left. The choice is between normal or crazy, close quote. Do you agree with her about that? Pretty much. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, the crazies were uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene standing up to heckle the president. The Republicans have got a pretty pretty good lock on crazy. And, you know, if they want that lock, uh, bless them. Let them have it. Harold Meyerson, he wrote about this State of the Union speech and Biden in the polls for the American Prospect. You can read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Do you agree or disagree with the following statement? The government, media, and financial worlds in the United States are controlled by a group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who run a global child sex trafficking operation. Of course, that's the heart of the nutty belief system of QAnon, the conspiracy theory that's made inroads recently in the Republican Party. For comment and analysis, we turn to Chris Lehman. He's the nation's DC bureau chief. He was formerly editor of The Baffler and The New Republic. And he's the author most recently of the book, The Money Cult, Capitalism, Christianity, and the Unmaking of the American Dream. And he's written the cover story in the new issue of The Nation on QAnon. We reached him today in Washington. Chris, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. It's always a pleasure. Well, here's the results of that public opinion poll on the QAnon claim that the government, media, and financial worlds in the U.S. are controlled by a group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who run a global child sex trafficking operation. Completely agree, 5%. Mostly agree, 13%. Mostly disagree, 23%. Completely disagree, 56%. This is from March 2022. So almost one in five Americans agree completely or mostly. How many people is that? That translates roughly into 30 million Americans. 30 million Americans. (laughs) I find that difficult to believe because it's just so crazy. Yeah, well, you know, there is a long tradition of believing crazy things in this country. So um, in the piece, I try to situate the QAnon phenomenon, which I I do think, you know, your response is absolutely a healthy one to think this is (laughs) demented. This is a cult. This is, they have no purchase on, you know, sort of participating in a reasoned political debate. But the sad truth of the matter is paranoid conspiracy theories run very deep in our history and sort of wedded to the um, self-insulating capacities of the internet. There is this kind of hothouse phenomenon where these kind of beliefs multiply exponentially. They aren't really susceptible to rational suasion. They Every time a QAnon prophecy is proven false, they move on to some new and crazier um, set of predictions. So um, yeah, it is very dismaying to think that as, as many as 30 million people are beholden to this belief. But if you look at the state of the modern Republican Party, it's not all that outlandish. First, a little history of QAnon. This is from the PRRI website. 
this movement, if we can call it that, emerged on the internet at the end of 2017. The most visible role QAnon has played was in the January 6th insurrection, where that guy, the QAnon shaman, became the iconic image, the guy wearing furs and face paint and that headdress of horns inside the Senate chamber. I checked on his current whereabouts. He's serving 41 months in prison. At his sentencing, he told the judge he wanted to live his life like Jesus and Gandhi, but, quote, I messed up, close quote. Uh, uh, Since then, major social media platforms have banned uh, QAnon, and the leader of the movement, this mysterious figure Q, has disappeared from the Internet. But QAnon has continued to thrive on what are politely called alternative platforms. So tell us a little more about where we find QAnon adherence, especially among Republicans elected to national office. Well, you can find one on the House Oversight Committee, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, you know, she is now, as her uh, star is rising in Republican circles, is trying to distance herself from her uh, early infatuation with QAnon. Yeah, I looked up her quote on that. This was on Fox News in January. She said... Uh, that she, quote, got sucked into things online, close quote, which could happen to any of us. Uh, She said, quote, I never campaigned on those things. That was not something I believed in. That's not what I ran for Congress on. Those are so far in the past, close quote. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, so far in the past really can't apply to a belief system that's only existed for six years. (laughs) So that's one red flag to raise. Uh, The other red flag to raise, which I mentioned in the piece, is that while she is disavowing formal allegiance to QAnon, she is still very much aligned with a militant apocalyptic vision of national politics. She introduced Steve Bannon at a Young Republicans function in New York and said January 6th would have come out very differently if Bannon had been on hand and we would have been armed. And then she later said, just kidding. Just kidding. Of course, which is a classic. I also discussed this in the piece because QAnon began began life on the internet. It partakes of something we know very well from Donald Trump's many pronouncements and Twitter exclamations that when you step over a line on a given topic, you just say, oh, it's a joke, and the humorless liberal thought police don't understand. Um, this is this is you and me they're talking about. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, you get to have it both ways. The fact of the matter is these 30 million people, overwhelmingly Republican, I think it's safe to say, and any political leader on the right with national ambitions can't really ignore them. So, They will send coded. We saw this with Donald Trump's rally last fall. He went into full QAnon mode. He uh, dredged up the theme song of the movement, uh, this weird lacrimose composition called Mirrors. And he went through this litany of national decline uh, under Joe Biden. It was all very deliberately stage managed to appear like a QAnon revival. And this current, speaking of revivals, uh, Reawaken America tour that Michael Flynn and uh, uh, the Turning Points USA guy, Charlie Clerk, Kirk, have put together is a uh, very powerful, um, well-attended series of political revivals. It's uh, framed as a rebellion against vaccines and COVID lockdowns, but they perform baptisms there. There are QAnon speakers there. All of this is sort of hiding in plain sight on today's right. And I think, you know, the reflex to dismiss it while cognitively sound, (laughs) I think it's a political mistake. You can't really uh, pretend that these people aren't here and that they aren't important. You ask who else is affiliated with QAnon. Michael Flynn, who I just mentioned, has, you know, given versions of the QAnon oath that have been videotaped and gone viral. The comedian Roseanne Barr is an ardent Q follower um, now. And uh, so there's a very wide spectrum of both prominent personalities and rank and file um, true believers in this. Aside from Marjorie Taylor Greene, there's 214 other Republicans in the House. There's 49 Republicans in the Senate. How many of them would you say adhere to the QAnon conspiracy theory? Or maybe we should change that and say appeal for support 
from uh, yeah, QAnon if, adherents. If, if you're speaking of the latter phenomenon, it would be easier to ask how many don't. Remember that, what was it, 114? I, I don't remember the exact number, but a very significant slice of the Republican caucus voted after January 6th not to certify the election results. That is a clear signal to this sort of rest of apocalyptic base that we're, we are listening to you, we're not going to abandon you. One can argue with the equivocal results of the 2022 midterms. Where the QAnon candidates mostly lost. Mostly lost, yeah. QAnon was um, instrumental, actually, in recruiting a lot of uh, the election deniers who ran uh, for state attorneys general and uh, secretaries of state across the country. And yeah, in a general election, there is, thank God, still the capacity to recognize that these are insane beliefs and to reject them. So yes. when when you say QAnon selected candidates or QAnon supported candidates, Recruited. who is who is this QAnon? Um, that's that, I mean that's part of the evil genius of this whole phenomenon is you can't point to any leader. It's a leaderless. That's one of the reasons I think it's a mistake to uh, refer to QAnon as a cult because cults traditionally are organized around single charismatic leaders like Jim Jones or. Uh, the Reverend Sun Young Moon. There is no such figure. You know, sometimes Trump seems like he's auditioning to be that figure. And in the iconography of the movement, Trump is this sort of weird Marvel Comics hero who uh, is saving the world from the death grip of the pedophiles. But, you know, it is this sort of self-organized, internet-driven phenomenon of people, you know, taking a great deal of time and energy to document things that aren't real <laughs> and to make them seem like they are, you know, the pattern um, of world history. Those activities, again, I can't stress this enough, are very integral to American religious thought. You know, I looked at that, that poll and it said uh, among the people who declared ad the agreement with the beliefs of QAnon, almost 20% they say were Democrats. Now that makes me wonder, is there something wrong with this poll or is there something <laughs> I don't understand about Well, Q you know, some of these people, you know, we, you sort of saw this with Ashley Babbitt, the woman who was killed at the uh, January 6th insurrection. Uh, she had this sort of new age trajectory that went through a lot of improvised belief systems and landed here. And another thing that happened during the COVID lockdown that was really instrumental in boosting the, the growth of QAnon was uh, this Save the Children hashtag that became viral. And there is this weird overlap. It's one, one of the interesting things about QAnon, the discourse of children in peril and rescuing children who are in the, the grips of satanic forces. Unlike a lot of other sort of vanguard movements on the right, women are demographically probably represented in proportion to the population. And you do see this kind of overlap because, you know, the anti-trafficking child rescue discourse is also really popular among liberals and moderates. So the 20% Democrat thing doesn't necessarily, you know, they're probably kind of souls in pilgrimage, you know, mm -hmm. away from a, a certain kind of new age liberalism toward a much more hardcore apocalyptic conservatism. And again, that is not unusual in our history. You conclude your cover story for the new issue of The Nation. The fever is spreading. On the other hand, we've already said QAnon candidates lost in the midterms. I wonder if you think they'll do any better in the presidential race next year. If, if Trump is their man, if Trump and QAnon, as you say, were made for each other, what would happen if Trump lost the primaries to Ron DeSantis, for, well, just for Ron example? <laughs> I, I think Ron DeSantis is certainly fond of his conspiracy theories, and he's feverishly now trying to reposition himself as an anti-vax, anti-lockdown um, leader after an earlier sort of more equivocal tour in the early days of COVID when he was pro-vaccine. You know, the anti-vax part of the Republican Party is probably right now where most of the, the sort of movement energy is. And uh, that's why you had Marjorie Taylor Greene herself is being touted as a prospective running mate for Trump. She would appeal to the anti-vaxxers who are losing faith in Trump because Trump does actually regard with 
a little bit of justification <laughs> the vaccine as a genuine achievement of um, his White House. And you can't separate Donald Trump from an ego achievement. So you need, um, of course, then there become other problems of how do you have two attention-hungry conspiracy theorists on the same ticket. I'm skeptical that it would work if, even if it did come to pass. But, but that shows you where the logic of the GOP primary process is heading. I also did a piece recently on, you know, Trump's big announcement, his first policy announcement of the 2024 season is this kind of insane declaration of what his next term would do about the schools. And, you know, it's stuff like calling, he actually says wokeism is a religion and I will use the establishment clause of the constitution. It's, it's wow. complete nonsense, obviously. But again, you know, you have to always think of the audience for that. And that's who he's pitching at. People said right after January 6th, QAnon was going to go away because this was, if anything was the storm in QAnon theology, January 6th would have been it, right? Uh, didn't matter. The, the movement kept growing. They kept forecasting more and more crazy scenarios where Donald Trump would assume the presidency. They, you know, wandered off and, and, developed this whole subcult about John F. Kennedy Jr. and sometimes John F. Kennedy Sr. Why not? <laughs> um, again, I think it's an error to sort of apply traditional rational feedback um, mechanisms to something like this. It just breaks down. Chris Lehman, he wrote the cover story in the new issue of The Nation about QAnon, the latest conspiracy theory. You can read it online at thenation.com. Chris, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. Same old story, back again. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. February is Black History Month, and one of my favorite works of Black history is Isabel Wilkerson's book, The Warmth of Other Suns. It's a history of the great migration of six million Black people away from the South in the 20th century. It won the National Book Critics Circle Award and half a dozen other prizes. Isabel Wilkerson won the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing way back in 1994 when she was Chicago bureau chief for the New York Times. That made her the first African-American woman to win a Pulitzer Prize in journalism. She then devoted 15 years to interviewing more than 1,200 people to tell the story of the 6 million people who defected from the Jim Crow South, among them her own parents. In 2020, the book was named the number two most important work of journalism of the decade by the faculty of NYU's Arthur Carter Journalism Institute. There were 122 nominations. Number one was Ta-Nehisi Coates' The Case for Reparations. President Obama chose The Warmth of Other Sons for his summer reading list. And the New York Times named The Warmth of Other Sons to its list of the best nonfiction books of all time. We spoke with Isabel Wilkerson when the book came out in 2010. Your book is about what we call the Great Migration from uh, the Deep South to the North and the West. I, I always wondered why the black people in L.A. mostly came from Texas and Louisiana, whereas uh, the black people in Chicago came from Mississippi. But it turns out there's quite a simple explanation. There's a simple explanation in that there were three major streams of this great migration. It started in 1915 when World War I began, and there was a great need for labor in the, north, in the northern industrial cities. And they went to the cheap labor, which was in the south, and they began to recruit people, and the people were following essentially the train lines and the bus routes. There were three main routes. One was up the East Coast from Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, and Virginia up to Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. That was one route. And there, the, 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 that was the route that my family actually followed. Uh, there was a second one, which was, as you mentioned, from Mississippi, Arkansas, Alabama, 
to Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, following the Illinois Central, primarily up north. And then the route that's less known around the rest of the country is the one from uh, Louisiana and Texas to uh, California and the rest of the West Coast as people were following the train lines uh, out here. Well, you mentioned the Illinois Central, the the IC from Mississippi, especially north Chicago. In in my days as a blues aficionado, I went to uh, Clarksdale, Mississippi, the home of uh, Muddy Waters and other greats. And Highway uh, 61. Highway 61. <laughs> and part of that pilgrimage is you go to the IC station in Clarksdale, and I uh, stood on the platform, the, the northbound platform, and, and tried to imagine what it must have been like in 1940 for young McKinley Morganfield to be standing there. I imagine you've been to some of those IC platforms, too. Well, one of the things that I really were, was the goal of this book was to help bring this alive for the reader, to have the reader be able to feel what it was like to be living in the South at that time, to imagine being out in the open field, the cotton fields, uh, to be able to board those trains, as it was like to be on those trains, to, see, to feel what it was like to arrive in a big city where you knew no one, uh, the sounds, the feels, the, 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 the uh, sights and sounds of that. That, and to put the reader right inside the hearts and minds of these people who really were leaving in uh, the same way that um, people from other parts of the world have come uh, coming across the Atlantic in steerage or across the Pacific. It was really this immigrant heart that was propelling them to find another place that might be freer within the borders of their own country. So how many people rode the IC, the Illinois Central, out of the South? Well, you know, they, they came from all over. The IC was just one of the many places. I mean, there was a Silver Comet coming up the north. There's the, uh, uh, the uh, Southwest Chief. There was all many, there were many, many different trains and bus, bus routes. Many people drove and left in the middle of the night. It's hard to know how many might have been on any particular mm-hmm. line because they were going every which way they could to get out. Essentially, these were defections from the south. It's almost as if they were seeking political asylum from a caste system that had been treating them ill. So you tell the the Mississippi to Chicago story by focusing on a woman named Ida Mae Gladney. How did you find Ida Mae Gladney and 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 the other people you wrote about? Well, that's where the twelve hundred people that I that mentioned come <laughs> yes. in. Essentially, I did kind of a casting call, a kind of audition, you might say. And so I went to senior centers, many of them right here in, in L.A. I went to uh, uh, senior day picnics. I went to quilting clubs. I went to uh, to Baptist churches, Catholic mass. I went to a Juneteenth parade. I actually had a booth at the Juneteenth parade over near Lamert Park one year in order to find people. So I went all over. Uh, when it came to Chicago, I went to a place where there were retirees from the CTA, that's the Chicago Tr- Transit Authority, and, the, and, a, and a woman came up and she said, I didn't actually make the migration, but my mother did. And so she volunteered her mother, Ida Mae Gladney, uh, for uh, consideration for the book. And uh, what kind of person was Ida Mae Gladney when she was a young girl in Mississippi? Well, she was a tomboy, and she was very good at—she could kill snakes— she could chop wood. She uh, would like to go out and plow for her brothers. She actually would take tap sticks to kill uh, rabbits with. She, in fact, her her nickname was Tom for a good while. And then uh, she she, but in her world there were perils. And at one point, she actually was um, she was running an errand for her father, uh, taking some uh, a tool to the blacksmiths. Um, shop and the blacksmith's sons who didn't have anything better to do um, they actually grabbed her and they dangled her over the mouth of a well when she was about five or six years old. She never forgot that and she told me, she said, I wondered what what would have happened if they had dropped me no one would ever have known. In those days there were not the protections for African Americans in the Jim Crow South and so she said nothing would have ever come of it. But she was the type of person who didn't dwell on such things, you know, an inspiration for all of us. She really lived in the moment and, and made the most of what she, whatever was before her. And um, she ended up being terrible at picking cotton. She ended up being a sharecropper's wife with that was the task. And she, she was terrible at it. She hated it. And again, she could kill snakes. She could wring a chicken's neck for dinner, but she was not good at picking cotton. And her family ultimately left Mississippi for Chicago when um, a cousin had been wrongly accused of having 
having of of stealing something he had not uh, stolen. He was beaten within an inch of his life, and the next day, the thing that they thought he had stolen turned up, but nothing was done of it uh, about it. And her husband came to her and said, after he saw what happened to his cousin, "This is the last crop we're making," and they left. This is the last crop we're making. We're speaking with Isabel Wilkerson. Her magnificent new book is titled The Warmth of Other Suns. So a key part of this story um, is not just that black people had the motivation and in many cases the energy to leave the South. The white South had a system to prevent them from leaving. There there was a legal system, and then there was, what do we call it, an informal uh, system that backed that up. Uh, explain how this system worked. Well, first, the system known as Jim Crow controlled every aspect of their life, so that it was illegal, believe it or not, it was against the law for a black person and a white person to play checkers together. It's astounding someone would just sit down and think about writing something down like that. But that was a law in Birmingham, for example. It, there was actually, in, there were in some courtrooms, a white Bible and a black Bible to swear to tell the truth on. Actually, different Bibles. And there, it came to light for me when I was doing the research, and there was actually a trial in which they had to stop the trial right in, in the middle of it because they couldn't find the black Bible Amazing. for the black person who had just uh, taken the stand. Amazing. But to get to your question about how, uh, the efforts to keep them from leaving, uh, when there were large numbers of black people on the plat- train platforms, the authorities would uh, wholesale just arrest people on the charge of, of peonage or the fa- or charge that they might have owed the planter to whom they under whom they had worked. And that was because their labor was leaving, their cheap labor was leaving, and the entire economy of the South was based upon having cheap labor to be able to work the fields and to tend to the um, the essentially the Southern aristocracy. And so they did not want their cheap labor going. They would board the train sometimes when there were large numbers of black people already on the train and, and arrest people. And then when those things didn't work, they would actually wave the train on through if they saw large numbers of black people waiting to board. And they also, there were uh, state uh, efforts to prevent blacks at Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, uh, from finding out about opportunities for jobs in the North. Uh, and that was that was you're speaking about the Chicago Defender primarily, which was essentially the, the the newspaper in the North that would alert people to the opportunities that were there, jobs available, um, what places that they might find a place to live. It gave them hope and, and connections that they might otherwise had. But that Chicago Defender was considered contraband, and a person could not, an African-American could not be seen receiving one. They might have been intercepted at the post office. I mean, who was there to receive it? But but the people who were running uh, the Jim Crow system. And so often they, the Chicago Defender made it to the South and to these people through the Pullman porters who would uh, who would pack them uh, in the back with the luggage, and then they would hurl them from certain agreed-upon mm. sites. And the people who were the essentially the couriers of them in the South would then go and, and, and get them and then distribute them. So, Isabel Wilkerson, in your book, The Warmth of Other Suns, you, you talk not only about leaving the South, but of, of life in the North. What, what was Ida May Gladney's life like in Chicago? Was it the promised land? It was very difficult, particularly in the beginning. She arrived during the Great Depression, uh, which was hard for everyone, but especially hard for her. And and black women had a really hard time because uh, men in general, immigrant or otherwise, were much needed because you had foundries, you had steel mills, you had slaughterhouses, which where a strong back was required and valued, especially if you didn't have much education. And she did not. She had you know grown up in the countryside of of Mississippi. But the women had a hard time, and the only thing they could hope to do was become domestics, but they're actually, during the Depression, was very little work for them. And so they ended up, she and en- there ended up being these markets, they were actually called them slave markets, in which black women would gather on a corner and wait for um, a well-to-do, well-to-do white housewives to come and pick oh. among them. And they actually started bidding wars among themselves, so they were bidding down the price oh. that they might get. That's the story, one of the stories in this book, <laughs> Ida Mae Gladney's story of the Mississippi to Chicago 
migration. There's also the Louisiana to Los Angeles migration. And that you tell through the story of a man named Robert Forster, who left Louisiana in 1953, an amazing person. For starters, he didn't take the train. He drove in a Buick. He drove in a Buick across the desert, and it ended up being a little more treacherous than he had anticipated because he thought that uh, he would be able to find a place to rest after he got out of Texas. And it turned out that in 1953, uh, Jim Crow, as we know, the the the, you know, the uh, system of segregation actually extended beyond the borders of what he thought was the South, and it was a, it was a shocking and surprising thing to him, and a dispiriting thing. And yet he had gone too far from his home in order to turn back. He was leaving Monroe, Louisiana, because he had served in the army as a surgeon. But when he got out of the army, it turned out he could not practice in his own hometown of Monroe, Louisiana. So he set out for California, which had always been a dream. And he wanted to uh, to come out here, but it turned out that he could he had to drive from multiple states without stopping because he could not find a place to stop to rest. And and how did it happen that Robert Forster got to be a surgeon in Louisiana uh, in the late forties? He didn't become a surgeon in Louisiana. <laughs> he became a surgeon by going to the one black uh, medical school, which happened to be Meharry Medical School, that happened to be in Tennessee. So he did not become a surgeon there. He had to go outside of his own state for that, to the slightly more progressive state of Tennessee, where there was a, a historically black college known as Meharry that had been that had gone had a history going back to uh, reconstruction and that's where he went and then he went into the army so then he went into the army and then uh, he was able to perform there are some fascinating stories about the problems that he had in the army but but once he got out he decided he wanted to bring he had a family by then but they had been separated for much of the time as he was pursuing his medical degree and he wanted to bring the whole family together and he set out on a course for uh, California on his own which is very typical of the great migration and of also immigrant men he often set out first and then scout out the new world get situated and then call for the family Mm-hmm. But he had such a hard time. I attempted, actually, in the course of doing the research, to recreate his journey. I rented a Buick. Wow. Had my parents <laughs> with me who were by then retired and all. And they were migrants. They had migrated mm-hmm. from the South, too. So they were always ready for an adventure. And we found ourselves. I tried, I tried to follow it to the letter based upon his description of what he had done. And when we got to the stretch where he needed to drive without being able to stop, um, I began to. Ex- I wanted to experience what he did. How the fingers begin to swell and they begin to ache, and the eyes begin to get, mm. eyelids get heavy. And th- by this time, it was darkness in the desert, and the mm. mountains came, and you had this hair, these hairpin turns. And at a certain point, my parents said. We must stop the car. You're not going to let us drive. They wanted so much to drive. I said, no, I must do the driving myself. He did it himself, and I've got to do it. And my parents said, no, for all of our sakes, stop. So we only made it to Yuma, Arizona, where, of course, because life, uh, because the world has changed so much, look how far we've come as a country. We had no trouble, my parents and I, finding a place to rest. But he did not have it so easy in 1953. He did not have it so easy. Robert Forster eventually went back to Louisiana. Tell us that story. Yeah, he had to go back. Generally, some people never went back, we should say. Some people never went back until unless uh, generally their mother died. Essentially, that was what brought some people back. He had to go back also for funerals. And one time when he went back, um, he decided to stop in at a uh, restaurant that he had not been able to go to when he was growing up in Monroe, Louisiana. This was now by now the 70s and things had changed and things had opened up. And he was he was surprised and underwhelmed by the very, by the mundane nature of the place that, of this restaurant that he'd gone to. I mean, by this time he'd lived in L.A. and he'd gone to some of the finest restaurants here. So mm-hmm. he was accustomed to just wonderful, wonderful, high-end, glamorous places. And he went back to this restaurant and he was thinking to himself, essentially, is this what they were keeping us from? Because it was so very mundane, which shows you how 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 um, small the people were thinking when they tried to keep the races separate, and how sad and tragic it was for everyone. Because some of these people might have been the best of friends, but they would never get to know it because they were so separated that way. So he found it quite under underwhelming. And then, in an odd kind of way, he he was healed because is this all that there was? Mm. 
Is this all that there was? Yeah. Um, I understand you brought your own mother back to Georgia uh, long after she had left. And what, what was that like for, for her and for you? Well, actually, at first, she, I mean, kicking and screaming. I mean, absolutely did not. <laughs> she kicking and screaming and not wanting to, to go back. I needed to be in the South at a certain point for the writing because I needed to really truly understand what they left. They left a beautiful land. I mean, you must acknowledge the beauty of the land, the lushness of the land. They left kin and, you know, uh, relatives in the land of their birth. And so they gave up a lot and sacrificed a lot, as would as would any immigrant. You, you, you come to realize what the forebears have given up in order for all of us, so many of us, to have a life here in America, a great country. And, and so I needed to do that. But she went back kicking and screaming and did not want to be there. I also took her to the um, the to um, the Fox Theater in Atlanta where she, growing up, could only go through the side door. And she had the same reaction as Dr. Foster did. Hmm. It was, you know, it's beautiful. It's, you know, got all of the, the bells and whistles of one of those, uh, you know, 1920s theaters. But after all those years and after what she'd experienced being in Washington, D.C. with the great monuments and all in the White House and the Capitol and, the, and all of that, she, too, said, is this what they were trying to keep us from? Amazing. Uh, I just wanted to close by asking you to read the, um, the passage from which your title comes from uh, Richard Wright. Yes, Richard Wright was one of the great novelists of the 20th century. He was also someone who migrated from the South, from Mississippi to Chicago. And when he wrote this, in some ways, it's a message to anyone who ever has to leave one place that they, the place they've only known for a new place, a new life that they're setting out for. And it reads, I was leaving the South to fling myself into the unknown. I was taking a part of the South to transplant in alien soil to see if it could grow differently if it could drink of new and cool rains, bend in strange winds, respond to the warmth of other suns, and perhaps to bloom. Isabel Wilkerson, her wonderful new book is The Warmth of Other Suns. Isabel Wilkerson, thanks for your book and thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Mm-hmm.